0: Hi, and welcome back to the Asymmetrical Haircuts summary runs. This episode comes from back in 2020 and looks at the case of Jermaine Katanga. Katanga was found guilty of being an accessory to one count of crimes against humanity and four counts of war crimes, but only after the judges changed the mode of liability in the case. Together with Lisa Clifford, we dive deep into whether justice was actually served and the long-term effects on both victim and accused.
1: Hi, this is Steph. I'm sorry to interrupt Jason. Uh, I'm just here to tell our listeners to stick right around to the end uh, of this one because we have an update for you.
2: Yeah, and here's Janet. And really, it's a little bit crazy uh, what we're going to uh, add in at the end. I mean, just like this whole story that you're about to delve into with us with Lisa. So we'll speak again after the main podcast. Here's Lisa.
0: So, I mean, I'm already feeling very, very uncomfortable very uncomfortable about the whole thing. But, you know, I'd come thousands of miles. I thought I really, ideally, we would film you apologizing to this woman.
3: Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands.
4: Victims of horrific crimes want justice.
0: We don't
1: have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg.
2: All rise. Lisa, hi. You're back in The Hague. This is great. Um, Stephanie, Lisa. Lisa, Stephanie. Hi. Hi. This is Lisa Clifford, old friend, um, former colleague. Um, We were both at an organisation, IWPR, eons ago. Um, That was mainly covering the Yugoslav Tribunal, but then got into the ICC and you really pushed it on and took it forward. But now you're a filmmaker,
0: I am a filmmaker, yes, but I couldn't leave the subject of international justice, which I'm sure you're both very happy about. Um, so yeah, I made a film I made a film about the German Katanga trial at the International Criminal Court. And so you're back here to show it? I am back here to show it, yeah. I've been showing it at different locations um, in the UK and, um, well, actually in the US, um, but this is the first time it's been shown in The Hague, so that's very exciting. I'm wondering if some ICC people might come along. I don't know.
2: And it's called Militiaman, and it's about Jermaine Katanga. Who was who Jermaine Katanga? What, what was happening? It's a long time ago for people to remember. It is a
0: long time ago. In fact, it's a long time ago for me to remember. Um, I was reporting on the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and we kind of started with the Lubanga trial, which I'm sure you both remember very well. Um, and after that came the Katanga trial. Um, and we didn't pay a huge amount of attention to the Katanga trial at the time. I'm not really sure why. It didn't get... As much publicity, and he was charged on the opposite side of that conflict. You'll remember, um, Germain was a Lendu, or in fact, he was an Ngiti, um, and Thomas Lubanga was a Hema. So they were they they'd kind of chosen the ICC had kind of chosen people on the opposite side of the conflict. Germain was in prison uh, in Kinshasa at the time when the ICC went looking for cases in the H- in, in in Kinshasa, and. Um, he was scooped up and brought to The Hague, um, and he was, charged, he was charged with crimes in Bogoro, which is a small village uh, about an hour from the, uh, from the capital of the region, Bunia. Um, and as I said, I didn't really cover that trial too much, um, but I'd met his lawyer, David Hooper, um, who was a very interesting and generally quite charming and kind of amusing person, and I thought he'd make a great film.
2: Um, oh, who would make a great film? David, David Hooper. Cooper. Okay. Yeah,
0: and that's kind of how it started. I'd interviewed him a few times, uh, David Hooper, and I thought he would make a really, really interesting film, and I kind of found out what he was working on. And the Katanga trial was, was finished. Germain had been convicted, um, and he didn't have that much longer to serve on his sentence. And um, David, amazingly, somehow, uh, managed to arrange an interview with Germain at the ICC, he said, do you want to meet him and see you, know, you know, see what my big case was about? And no one had ever interviewed anyone in custody at the ICC. And to this day, I'm never sure how it happened or why it happened. And I met Germain, and I thought, you know what? This is a very interesting film, because we'd also been to Congo a few months before we met him. We'd been to Bagora and we'd met a young girl called Sarah, who you see in the film. And Sarah told us that if she could tell Germain Katanga anything, she would tell him she hated him that he had killed her family and he'd ruined her life. He'd burned down their village. He'd done unspeakable things, and she wanted to tell him that. So I got back to The Hague, and I told David I'd met Sarah. And he, um, he looked at the clip of Sarah, and he said, German should see this. I thought, okay. So he arranged this interview. We played the, we played the clip of Sarah saying you know, how much she hated German. He said, well, I want to apologize. And that's kind of how it started, so off the cuff, Germain recorded an apology to the to the people in Bogor and specifically to Sarah, who'd lost her family. And um, that's pretty much how the film started. And my idea very much was that German, who was about to be released, maybe he had 18 months left on his sentence, was going to go back, and he was actually going to apologize in person. I thought, well, this is a good film. This is probably better than
2: a film about David Hooper. Um, and that's kind of how it started. Should we just go back into a little bit of the detail of the case because this was um, one that um, I think both well at least I remember maybe you remember Stephanie is the one being about mode of liability. I must admit that this is this started after I left The
1: Hague for um, the former Yugoslavia and um, Senegal for a while so I've been out of the loop largely on the on the Katanga trial so this has to come down to your background knowledge.
2: Okay. Um, Okay, so over to me on trying to remember what I remember about mode of liability. Yeah, Jenna. what do you remember? Because I'm not sure how well I can explain it either, because my film's not about the trial. No, but what I do remember is that um, partway through the trial, the judges looked at what was going on, and two out of the three judges said, okay, if we're going to go anywhere further with this, which was essentially saying if we're going to convict this person, um, we're going to have to change the basis on which we actually deal with him, and therefore, the mode of liability, sort of you know under what basis he's been charged. Um but one of the judges uh, disagreed about that. That was Judge Christine van Weinhardt, and uh, you use in the in the film a quote from her. So let's just listen to that now.
1: There is no reliable evidence that German Katenga played any role in the execution of the attack on the twenty fourth much less in any of the crimes committed in Bogoro on that day. I would have acquitted the accused because the prosecution failed to prove German Katanga's responsibility as initially charged. I would have decided this acquittal a long time ago.
3: I remember reading that dissenting judgment, and we all did, uh, and felt well, we, we don't really have to appeal this, we just have to put this judgment in, because she, she, she had, you know, nailed every point. A very forceful dissent. I don't think I've ever seen a stronger dissent on a judgment.
2: So that was David uh, Hooper, um, and then he had to fight the trial basically again on this new mode of liability?
1: No,
0: because this all happened um, after the trial had finished.
1: So this was what I remember from it, and what I know now in lore from defense lawyers is that actually they had the entire trial. The judges were looking at how to um, give way to what the prosecution had showed and said, well, what the prosecution showed doesn't show that he uh, could be held responsible as a direct perpetrator. And so, but maybe he could be held responsible as a co-perpetrator, but the prosecutor didn't say that. Um, as a mode of liability. So um, technically, uh, in some jurisdictions, then you can't change it. That's how UK law works, that you can't then change the mode of liability or change the charges to kind of suit what happened. But um, civil law does work that way, and judges can kind of work around and say, well, what this is what we think has been proven, and that corresponds to this mode of liability. And then they changed it, so he couldn't uh, mount a defense on these bits. And so defence attorneys still have, uh, when we talked to Melinda Taylor, they also mentioned the Katanga case as a way in which judges kind of think of things on their own and don't give the defence any chance to mount a case based on that. And that was a big scandal. So, so that's how I know the Katanga trial. And that's what happened. So in deliberations about the verdict, they kind of changed the mode of liability. And then there was no way to um, for the defence to
2: respond to that. Was David Hooper quite upset about all this? Or has he just accepted it by the time you were talking to him?
0: I think he'd accept... By the time we were talking to him, he'd accepted it. But he, he's... He, the question that he gets a lot is, well, why didn't you appeal? Because man was convicted on his own evidence in the end. In an attempt to prove that he wasn't the one in charge of the whole operation, he'd admitted facilitating the crime. He'd admitted that. And of course, he never would have done that um, had he known that they were going to change the charges six months after the trial had ended. So he was convicted on his own evidence. So I think David thought there was probably quite a strong case for appeal. But um, as I said before, it wasn't long before he was about to be released. Um, They'd made a deal with the prosecution that neither side would appeal anything. And when he came up for release, the prosecution wouldn't protest. And then Germain could go home. And that was what Germain wanted. He wanted to go back to Congo. Um, And as David says in the film, David thought this was the fastest way to get him back to Congo. No one appealed anything. And then 18 months later, he would be home course that's not what happened in the end
1: so Katanga and Hooper or both agreed he got fed up with being in the Hague um the fastest way out was not to appeal and just deal with the fact that he'd been in this prison and served the last tiny bit of his sentence and then go home but that didn't quite happen as planned what what did happen
0: what happened next is he. Um, there was about a month left on his sentence. It was in December that he was meant to go home and he had till the end of January left on his ICC sentence. So I'm not entirely sure why, but that meant that he could leave and that he would serve his last bit of his sentence in prison in Kinshasa, in Makala Prison. So um, off he went. Um, and on the plane he went um, back to Congo. And he was expecting to be released, I think it was something like the 25th or 26th of January. So I was speaking to him... Just before that, he's like, I'm not being released. It's like, what do you mean? He's like, I've been charged again with more war crimes. And they were very, very similar to the war crimes that he had been charged with in The Hague. They were not the same. Bagaro, for example, wasn't mentioned at all, but it was the same time frame, the same area, the same conflict. Um, So he was charged again, this time by the Congolese government. Now you probably know, maybe you don't know because I didn't know this, Um, in order that someone who's been tried in The Hague to be charged again in another country, the the ICC has to approve it.
1: Right, I was going to say, did the ICC not have any kind of inkling that this was going to happen? And and are they obliged to divulge that to, to people? I think that they, I think that the defense team knew
0: that there were legal issues brewing in Congo, but they thought it was a case that, remember I said when he was, when he was scooped up by the ICC initially, he was in prison in Kinshasa for the killing of some um, uh, Monuk soldiers um, in Ituri. But the defense was very confident that there was nothing, there was no case to answer there, that, that German was in a different part of Congo at the time. And they were, they, were, they weren't they were worried about that being a problem. That What they didn't have an inkling of was this brand new case, um, it, very, very much related to the charges that he'd already faced in, in Congo. So the ICC, what the ICC knew, this I couldn't answer. I have no idea. But this came as an absolute bolt out of the blue to the defense and to
1: German himself. I'll just slightly go back for people who are not into the Congo as much as probably you and me are. Monuc is the UN um, forces operating in Congo. So these are UN blue helmets that were uh, that he was accused of attacking
0: exactly uh, it, it, you know he he, uh, he was part of an attack and I don't can't remember how many peacekeepers were killed nine or ten I think
1: I don't remember that but uh, basically that were the charges and his defense thought that if there are some legal issues probably this is these old blue helmet charges exactly. and um, we can fight them because we know he was completely somewhere else so it would be fine if he goes back because we will fight that and he'll be on the streets in no oh, time. Yeah,
0: we're not too worried about that. But that—that's never been mentioned again. No one has ever, ever mentioned that case again. It's dead or disappeared or has vanished somewhere. So the new—the new case is completely utterly related to something different. And
2: so, how long has he been back? And he has he been in Congolese prison all the time since he's been back? Yeah, he's been back for four years now, and he's been in Makala prison in Kinshasa that entire time. And he has been charged with
0: something. He has been charged with new war crimes, very, very, very similar to the war crimes in The Hague, but. The case is very, very vague and we've seen the case file, I've seen the case file, and it's 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 you know it's it's epic. And you can see in the film his Congolese lawyer leafing through all these very random documents. So it's not an empty file, but nor is it very specific. It doesn't seem to relate to Germain in any way. It relates to crimes that were committed. There's some quite gory pictures of of villagers with their heads, you know, cut from their from their shoulders, but it's not clear who or what happened to these people. Um so he has been charged but nothing has happened in 4 years.
1: And you talk about his Congolese lawyer but Basman and Hooper his ICC lawyers um are still with him they f- they follow this case till to the day or they're with him in the sense that the
0: reparations process has been ongoing or has was ongoing for many years. So that's the ICC part of the case still. So they still go to Congo. Um, but it's related to the ICC case. He's, he, as far as the Congolese case is going, he, he, he's pretty much on his own. And what I should have said, what I should have said, and I forgot to say, is that the ICC approved this case. Um, they, they, the presidency of the ICC said it was okay for Congo to proceed with this case, that they were quite sure a German would get a fair trial in Congo. And it was the presidency that made the decision And David um, and the legal team, they didn't know where to appeal. Nothing like this had ever happened before. He said, well, where do we even appeal? Who do we complain to about this? There was just no, there was no mechanism to to say that this is entirely wrong, that Germain will not be getting a fair trial in Congo. Where does this come from? Have you even looked at the charges? Um, And occasionally I was in Congo um, when I was filming, when I was filming and you kind of look at the back of the courtroom and there's a couple of people from the ICC there Watching what happens in the court. So they are, they're keeping, they're certainly keeping an eye on this. And then they scuttle off when you ask, can we talk to you about this and why is this has happened?
2: Is your film, do you think, essentially about um, reconciliation and about how a community gets back together? Because you're talking about a community, Bogoro, in terms of the initial charges against him that was torn apart by this, a young woman who wanted to blame him and. Um, Jermaine, who wants to explain his point of view. And then you also actually follow the lawyers back to, well, they go and talk to the community. I mean, what, what's your what's the take on reconciliation? I think,
0: I think that one of the reasons I wanted to do the film in the first place, um, and it kind of got very complicated with all this legal stuff. I had never thought that it would become so sort of legally. And the idea initially of my film was to do a film about how do you make communities whole again and what can you do is justice the answer to making a community whole again? Or are there other ways that people can start to feel better after these mass atrocities? So I was really, really interested in this this aspect. And, of course, the ICC has this strong reparations angle as well. And I wanted to look a bit about how that that worked in practice in this
2: incredibly damaged community. And David Hooper talks about how, how that works.
5: We want
3: to try and sort of bring these two groups together to try and initiate in a small way reconciliation process because that hasn't happened because the one thing that struck us and this is obviously going further than lawyers would normally go is the need really for these communities to well, to stop fighting you can't be involved in this sort of thing for so long without being quite touched and affected by it these aren't like ordinary cases not just this case but other cases you you do get drawn into it, and, um, well, you do what you can, really. I mean, yeah, you do what you can.
1: What I find amazing about this clip, and that Hooper goes to these villages to try and set up some kind of thing by himself, so how does he how does he do that, and how was it received in the villages? Because I assume you followed him to, to see this, and I... Trying to imagine a tiny village in Congo where he kind of shows up and being his David Hooper self, who's very much a Downton Abbey type of figure, (laughs) an accent at least. So how, how does that go?
0: It was an awkward day to say the least, because Congo remains the same as ever, that the, the security is still not good, that Heman and the lender are still very much in conflict with each other. The ICC wouldn't let David and Caroline and the rest of the legal team go to Bogora without an escort. So we, we arrive in this, and I was, as you say, I was there with my camera, um, and we arrive in this small town. We didn't have a tank, but we had we just had all those white land cruisers. I mean, you can imagine the scene as we spill out of the, of the vehicle and David has his laptop with German's apology. Um, so we go into sort of the, the, the village hall, kind of the community center and everyone is there and David kind of does his introduction. Um, people, people were not very receptive. Um, He intended initially to play the apology in the village hall, but I think he realized quite early on that that wasn't going to go very well. So he kind of tried to explain that he was here and that Germain was sorry. And through David, Germain was trying to say he was sorry. And there was kind of a lot of shouting. So eventually we we did have to leave in in quite a hurry. Um, And the whole purpose of the trip for me had been that David was going to play Germain's apology to Sarah, the young girl who'd said she hated Germain. And his team were saying, David, it's not a good idea. I don't think we should do this. But David's like, no, we've come to do this. We're,
1: I,
5: I we're going, totally see that happening. We're going to her this house. This is what we
1: planned.
0: What and no one knows where she is because she's become like a mini celebrity at this point. No one had ever heard of this girl. And somehow I'd brought the weight of celebrity down on her. So, I mean, I'm already feeling very, very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable about the whole thing. But, you know, I'd come thousands of miles. I thought I really, ideally, we would film you apologizing to this woman. So we, we trek off to her brother's house, and someone finds Sarah, and she arrives on a motorcycle. And, you know, David plays the apology. Um, and she calls her brother over, who, who appears in the film as well. And they watch it very quietly. Um, and no one really says very much, but David keeps talking
2: you know, as he does. And off we go. And that was the day. And. What's your sense then? I mean, what, what what what's real about this? What what can actually be achieved?
0: I think in the end, because I went back many times after that, and I got to know Sarah and Ruth and Tibisima, the Babona family, um, who who lost who lost their parents and their their property and their cattle. And I, in a way, I think it helped. Actually, I think they were slightly gobsmacked by it all. It was just so strange. It was awkward and strange. You can you can only imagine how awkward and strange it was. But I think because they'd never seen German before. They had no idea who he was. They didn't know anything about his trial. They didn't know what had happened to him. They knew nothing. Everything they knew, it came from me, essentially, or from the legal team because the ICC had, had failed to inform them. Maybe the ICC had tried to inform them and they didn't fully um, grasp it. Or, But they were, you know, they were very smart people. So I don't know why they wouldn't have grasped it. And they grasped it just fine when I told them. Um we went backwards and forwards a few times and by the end and the end of my film i don't want to give away the ending of my film but maybe i will anyway um tibisima who is sarah's older brother the head of the family now because his dad was his dad was killed had forgiven Germain. and the end of my film i find very touching i really do he says i forgive you i feel sorry for you german katanga and i forgive you and i wonder if no matter how awkward that day was with david the attempt that he made, in in the awkward way, I think it, it did actually make some difference, and I feel like it almost made a lot more difference than however many years that the legal process in the Hague took. And I'm I'm, I'm guessing a little here, but but knowing them, I don't know. I I I kind of felt better by the end of it after we, because I, I felt very awkward because of my role in it all with the apology. I did feel extremely awkward, and I wondered, am I doing the right thing?
2: But to uh, Jermaine Katanga himself. I mean, uh, he's stuck in prison. You've actually managed to film him there in uh, the DRC prison as well. But how how does he feel? Does he feel that his situation is in the least bit acceptable? I think he's just
0: humongously institutionalized now. I mean, he was been in, he was in the Hague for years on end. He was in his very early twenties when it all started. He's now in his late thirties. He's kind of a big man where he is. You know, he's in a special wing for more political prisoners. The people that are involved in the killing of Laurent Kabila, the former president of Congo, are in his wing. I mean, it's quite a serious wing of, of quite serious people. And he's a big man there. Um, their lives are different there. It's not like being in The Hague. You know, there's alcohol. There are, there's any kind of food you want. There are phones. He's on WhatsApp. He's on Facebook. It, there's all, so his life there, I wouldn't say it's good but it's, it's more of the life he's used to. So I think I think he's very much institutionalized and, and, and he's used to it. But he's, yeah, he's angry. And in my film, he says he's angry. He blames the ICC for ruining
2: his life, is what he says. And he told you what he thought about justice?
5: Justice. Justice is the same. In America, in Iraq, Pakistan, DRC, France... It's a little bit the same. (laughs) It's only the powerful who can judge those who don't have power. I wanted to be close to my family. If they say that uh, to arrive there, I will be killed. I will accept to go and be killed in the DRC. than to stay here alive without to see my families. I wanted to see my families. I lost my young brother. I I lost my daddy. I lost my mom. I needed to take care of the rest of people. My stepmother, I must take care of her. And I must go to see uh, where my father was burned
1: so Germaine is pretty disillusioned and says justice is only for the powerful um, how do you in the end of all this filmmaking feel about this idea of justice and how for instance the ICC operates
0: yeah I mean I am torn I was a When we started Janet, I was a big fan of international justice. Aren't we
2: we all just as
0: a concept? As a concept, but having spent years on this film and years with these people, it it certainly didn't work in this case. No one feels any better. The people in the village got, at the the end of the day, got their $250 in reparations and their programs of psychosocial support and education. But they were not happy. They were confused. Germain remains in prison I think David Hooper kind of says it very well, I think, in a, a clip that you have um, about who benefited the most from this
3: trial. Let's hear that. And, and the amount of money that's been spent in, in the whole process, you can't help but wonder really, with Germain Katanga still in prison, being held in Makala prison, you can't help but think, you know, what was it all about? Why did we have a trial? Think of the millions it cost. Wouldn't have been better if that money, that funding, had been committed, in fact, to uh, helping these communities 10 years ago.
0: Who benefited the most from this, these 10 years?
3: Lawyers, registry, judges' salaries. I suppose
1: that's a rather grim but realistic look on international justice so after this what happens now with this case and maybe what what you're going to do in future is going to be more um investigating international justice things or i feel like i
0: i feel a bit obsessed by international justice in the icc but i really I don't really, I, what I want to do with this film, I mean, I've showed it, you know, I've showed it in various places and it's been, you know, it's been shown at NGOs, lots of NGOs and law schools and film festivals, which has been really lovely. But what I want to do is take it back to Congo, because what I said I would do to Sarah, with Sarah and Ruth and T. Seema their brother, is show it to them, because this is their story. And they, you know, they allowed me access into the saddest worst most terrible moments of their life and i said i'd bring it to show them and they were kind of like no you won't i know you won't but i desperately desperately want to take it back to congo i want to show it to Germain. and i'd like to show it to some of the people in the village um so that's i think that would be a real benefit not to say that oh i could do better than the icc with their outreach programs but i think it's really important people hear their own stories about what happened and i'm a bit nervous about taking it back because the feelings are so raw you know, decades later, the feelings are so raw still. I'm a bit a bit nervous about that, but that's what I'm working on at the moment. So we need to make a, maybe a slightly shorter version of the film um, and subtitle it so everyone understands. Um, so that's my project at the moment.
2: What strikes me coming out of the film, I don't know whether you feel this as well, is that somehow when these trials are usually over, we usually just draw a kind of a, a you know, a double line under it and say okay done and then move on to the next thing and this is the first time that i've come across something that's really made me think very deeply about well what what keeps on going afterwards what happens later not only you know to the person involved the perpetrator to the lawyers who've become deeply cynical to the community i mean it's um there's a huge aftermath to these trials that I I hadn't really thought about because I just keep on moving on from one to the next.
0: Yeah, and I'm starting to feel increasingly angry about it. I mean, I was kind of annoyed as it was going on because it didn't seem fair, but now I'm bordering on quite angry, I think, because no one cares what's happened to him. You know, he's just nothing. He's nothing to international justice. Like, well, we put you on trial. We gave you an arguably unfair trial despite promising you the best justice in the world. Yeah, that's not what he got. I don't think, in my, my opinion. I mean, people might disagree with me, but I don't think he got the best justice in the world. Then they shipped him back, and they've left him. They've abandoned him. And he's not the man he would have been anyway. He's, he's completely different. The ICC made him different. The whole experience made him different. And then they've just dropped him off there. It's, I, I think it's just terrible. I, I think it's just an absolute outrage what's happened to him. And nobody knows about it.
2: He's so minor. He's such a little fish. And it's just, I think it's awful. Well, we'll put the links up to the film on uh, the podcast page and we'll do our best to make sure that uh, everybody gets to know uh, in order to see the film. Thanks for coming in to chat to us. But before you go... We have three asymmetrical
1: haircuts questions that we ask of all our guests. And uh, the first is, what do people
2: always get wrong about your work? What do they assume that you do as a filmmaker that, that, is, uh, that they don't get right? oh
0: wow what do people always get wrong about my work I think how I think it's the length of time it takes to make something I would say and you guys probably know this I mean it's this took years and then it took a year to edit and then now I'm sort of touring it around it's just the sheer amount of time that everything like this takes to and to make it good um is there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't ask you I don't think you. I think you asked me excellent questions. And it was nice to be able to talk about the legal aspects of it, because I always trying to avoid that a little bit. Um, you don't, most people don't want to talk about Regulation 55. So, yeah, well done.
1: And now that we're asking this, there's something that I forgot to ask. I realize now I really want to know, how did you get into a Congolese prison?
2: What was that like? How did you get there? What happened? What I imagine, you getting into Congolese prison, my imagination is, along with the alcohol, you got snuck in as a bottle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what I love about Congo, um, have you been to Congo, the two of you? No, I haven't. Uh, it was because of contrasting it to, yeah, the visit to the, to, the, to the ICC and to see him there. The contrast couldn't have been sharper. I arrived in Kinshasa. I messaged him on WhatsApp or Facebook. I said, I'm here. He's like, yes, you're here. I said, I want to come and see you. He's like, you know, what do we do? He's like, just come. So my cousin will bring you. And the cousin wasn't available. I'm like, oh, no, the cousin's not available. So my fixer and I went. Um, we got to the gates of the prison. We kind of knocked on the door and said, we're here to see the general. And they're like, okay, yeah, no problem. They kind of looked at me. And I think they maybe thought I was the lawyer. And I just, my camera now, everything's very small. Mm-hmm. And I had a bag full of cameras. And I said to my fixer, do you think we should bring the bag full of cameras and the recording equipment into the prison? He's like, yeah, no yeah. problem at all. Um, and once you go to get to the other side, this kind of a reception area, once you get past the reception area with a filthy pass, mm-hmm. I give you have a filthy pass, and I put my filthy pass around my neck, and the filthy pass says in French, if you lose this pass, you're going to have to stay in the prison. <laughs> I'm like, Ooh, that's quite serious. So We mustn't lose the pass. <laughs> so I got the filthy pass, and, and you get into the main prison courtyard, which is a prison that was maybe meant for 10,000 people. I'm mm-hmm. uh, sorry, about 6,000 people. there's 10, 12, 13, 14,000 people so it's packed there's no one it's only the prisoners there's no more guards there's no more Uh oh there's no more
1: order did you have that sense of like well it's just that thing where did I get into
0: what you're just surrounded by there's no one there's no one to help if there's a problem right but then, but there's, there's also, also no one to hinder. No, there's no one to hinder. And there's no problem. You know, people are very interested.
1: <laughs> Plus he's the celebrity general, the general. on the fancy wing. Yeah. I said, so
0: we're here to see the general. And I'm with my big backpack, we sort of go. In, and he's got his own, you know, his own wing, which is much nicer. It's not nice, but it's much nicer than the rest of the prison. And um, we walked in there and... Basically, I had my stuff in my camera, my mini tripod. I also had a phone, a, a, quite a good phone to, to film in case I wasn't able to take the camera out, but I, needed, I really needed good sound, so I needed to mic him, and the prison's incredibly noisy. But once he's got his own cell, his own private cell, and once you go in there and he closes the door, no one would bother the general. So I just set it up like a regular interview. My fixer held a light. I mean, this, the cell is very, very small, so there was no room for different creative angles, but I set everything up. We, I came every day for about two weeks. And after two or three days of visiting, they then started to get a bit, who are you? <laughs> Why, is this Why are you started? here? What's yeah. in the bag? And I was like, no, no, it's no, no problem. And we walked in. Then the next day, I, said to, I told Germain, he said, mm, maybe next time don't bring the camera stuff. And we came back and they're like, what's in the bag? I'm like, food and water for the general. And they said, we don't believe you. Let's see the bag. And I bought food and water for the general. And I was like, I'm very offended that you thought I was lying. And they're like, <laughs> oh, we're so sorry. And then after that, um, it was just fine. So I mean, you can do anything you want. You know, you can do apps. And I left a phone with Sherman, um, kind of the kind of the good phone. And at night, that you know, he went up to different parts of the prison, the less nice parts of the prison. And I've got lots of walking through the prison
1: with the phone.
0: <laughs> so you've got quite interesting. Oh, you shots. asked him to film some of filmed, the shots of yeah, the prison. Yeah. So there, he
1: actually filmed part filmed,
0: of it. He filmed part of it himself. Um, I just thought it'd be amazing to get this insight into this kind of unusual world because it's it is his own community. There's food. There's women. There's booze there's everything you ever needed um and they couldn't they didn't have any lights in their wing and they needed to hook up somehow illegally to the main power network and they asked for a donation from everyone who was there that day so i think i ended up donating 20 dollars <laughs> to the illegal to, to hook the up. illegal hookup of the yes yeah. so the general's like netflixing
1: in Makala yeah. yeah. so macala
0: prison no, then everyone loved me after that because you know i would bought power to the war criminals so that was good you empowered the war criminals <laughs> so yeah it's, everything's possible that's what I love about the Congo
1: oh yeah I could see that
0: well thanks very much for <laughs> explaining
1: I really wanted to know how that works so thanks very much
0: and then it was really funny because um, there were two different doors and for some reason I had to go in one door and my fixer had to go in the other and I really wanted to stay with him you know, I really didn't want to be there he's like no I have to go out this door and you have to come in this door so for quite a long time I was just there by myself in the prison yard and I was kind of standing there thinking oh this is just awful I mean what am I going to do but all they did was bring me a chair. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, give the white lady one of those plastic chairs. Yeah. I was like, oh, thank you. It's very kind. Thank you.
1: And the last question is, what have you been reading or watching recently that you would like to recommend? Apart, obviously, from that we should all see your movie. but so... Anybody else's. Anybody else's. It doesn't have to be international justice or mass atrocity related, but we do like that kind of stuff
0: oh that is really tough. Um, I think because my general life is so sort of full of mass atrocity and international justice when I sort of try and relax and read stuff and watch stuff for myself it tends to be incredibly trivial.
2: Oh well we do uh, murders both of us you know country you know um, country house murders are our stock in (laughs) trade. Police procedurals.
0: (laughs) I, I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna make a very shameful confession. Yes, do I, I, you might want to cut this out. I mean, I might ha- have to ask you to cut this out later. But I'm obsessed with zombies.
2: Oh, I'm oh, obsessed yes. with werewolves and vampire. Okay, so I feel comfortable now. Jay, yes. Jay, Jane Austen, the zombie movie. Yeah, that was a great one. <laughs> if you if you saw that, it's, it's, it's even, brilliant. It's
0: even worse. I'm obsessed with zombie fiction.
1: Oh, I'm obsessed with werewolf fiction. Okay, well,
0: I'm in, I'm in good company. So yes. I have no highbrow recommendations for, for your listeners, unfortunately. It's all zombie fiction.
2: Okay, well, okay. we'll get hold no. of that. And um, just very, very finally then, what, what's next? Um, I'm making another film, much closer
0: to home this time, um, about a very lovely man called John Lines, who is making his own coffin. Um, and it will follow John, who's a remarkable human being, until he takes up residence
1: in his coffin. Wow. So how long is that projected to last then?
0: Well, hopefully a very long time. Um, but John is 91, so uh, he's, he's a good age, but he's in amazing health. And he's, after doing a film about such sad things, John is an inspiring human being. He's an activist. He's a Quaker. He's a father. He's a great-great-great-grandfather, and he has joined Extinction Rebellion. Um, so he's regularly on the streets of London, blocking roads and getting arrested, and to take some inspiration from this guy is, is, it's been an absolute treat.
1: Wonderful. That sounds really uplifting after that. It is. <laughs> disasters of international justice. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Hi, this is Janet again. And this is Steph. Um, we thought that we should at least try to provide some kind of a short update on what's happened since. Yeah. And this is a story that just keeps on giving. It's full of twists and turns. And the best person to tell it, of course, is Lisa herself. So we contacted her and she sent us this voice note. Hi
4: there, Janet and Steph. What I thought I might do is read you an email that David Hooper sent me. I showed the film recently at the University of Essex. And I messaged him before that to see if I could find out what Germaine is up to. You'll remember um, that David Hooper is Germaine Katanga's lawyer. The two of them, as you saw in the film, got quite close over time because they spent a lot of time together over the years that the case took um, to wind its way through the International Criminal Court. So he continued to stay in touch with Germain even when he went back to Kinshasa. And you probably remember that uh, Germain ended up in prison again in Kinshasa pretty much as soon as he landed in the DRC after finishing his sentence at the IRC. Just after COVID broke out, Germain was very unexpectedly released um, from Makala Prison in Kinshasa. He pretty much immediately went off to Ituri, which is his home, to work with the army. Um, The interesting part of all that was that he went with his old foe, Thomas Lubanga. You remember he was charged with Thomas at the ICC. Um, They were on opposite Sides of this conflict. Um, so Germain was a Landu and Thomas was a Hema. So, what they did is they went uh, off to a Tory, and the idea uh, behind them going to a Tory was that they were going to go on a peace mission. There was an armed group that had formed in Natori in recent years. They're called CODECO. They're one of the uh, many militias that are still operating in the area. Um, And he was sent, along with Thomas Lubanga, to go and try and discuss peace with them.
1: And that's not even the final twist in this tale. So far, uh, we have former convicted war criminal Germaine Katanga, who has tried to apologize to his victim. And then after serving his sentence...
2: And uh, he ended up back in jail in King Kinshasa on more charges. And then he's been let out with his former enemy, Thomas Lebanga. Presumably they've been hanging out together in the detention unit in Scheveningen a lot earlier. Maybe they'd made friends there. And together they conduct a peace mission in Ituri. But of course, this story wouldn't be this story
1: if there is not one more plot twist. So over to Lisa. They made a few
4: missions from what I could see. And then they got abducted. Both of them got abducted and held hostage. Eventually, they were released or they escaped. David Hooper wasn't terribly sure which one of those happened. And as far as I know, Germain is now in Kinshasa. You're probably wondering what happened to the case against him, the domestic case against him in the uh, local court in Congo. Last time I spoke to him, he said that the charges were still pending, but nothing had happened. So they didn't exactly drop the charges, but they did release him. Very unclear what that means and if the
2: case will ever be taken up again. I very, very much doubt it though. So that's it for this rather incredible saga. Uh, Maybe they should make a movie about it, Lisa. But anyway, we'll definitely check in on DRC justice again, because it sounds like uh, there's uh, plenty more to talk about.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Lisa, for keeping us up to date and keeping us um, informed of all the wild twists and turns of this story. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.